This genealogy is super important if we're going to really understand the promise that God has made and kept and fulfilled in Jesus. And it's important, especially for us, if you've been here with us over the fall as we've been studying Jeremiah. In fact, my sermon is titled this morning, From Jeremiah to Jesus. From Jeremiah to Jesus. Let's start looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is how Matthew introduces us to Jesus. There are two words here in this first verse that are important for us, and they are the, word, the words genealogy and the word Christ. And now these words might seem obvious to you, what they mean, genealogy and Christ, but to Matthew's original hearers, this original audience, these are two words that pack a punch. The first word, genealogy, is the Greek word genesis. It literally means the beginning or the origin. And the word Christ, I know for a long time as a kid, I thought Christ was Jesus' last name. Um, but it's not. It's an important word. It's a word that means Messiah. It packs a punch to the original a reader, to the original hearer. It's a claim that Jesus is God's promised Savior, that he is the anointed king. He's the one in which all of God's people, all of history, has been awaiting. And so what Matthew's essentially saying here in this first verse is he's saying, I'm going to tell you where Jesus came from. I'm going to give you the origin story of God's Messiah, of the Christ. In other words, that's what genealogies were existed to do in the ancient world. They were important, much more important than they are for you and me. Maybe if you are into genealogies, and you do the Ancestry.com thing, you probably do it because you're just interested. It's fascinating to you to learn your family history and your lineage and your family tree. But in the ancient world, it was more important than that. It was more than just interest or intrigue about your family. It was legitimizing. It was the way in which one would be legitimized for his inheritance or for who he rightly is or the position or the, or the status in which they had. And so Matthew is saying, I'm going to legitimize for you Jesus and show you that he is the Christ. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus isn't just some guy who showed up on the scene out of nowhere making wild claims and doing miraculous work. No, Jesus is the one that God has been promising from the very beginning. That's what he's saying here in these first 17 verses. Jesus is the one that God has promised. The promise that was whispered in the garden in Genesis 3.15 where we're told this first gospel announcement that uh, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush his head. Genesis 3.15. This promise from the beginning that was amplified in God's covenant with Abraham, the promise that was passed on to David, the great king, he is very clearly and boldly saying, Jesus is the one that you've heard about. Jesus, the one we've been telling you about. Jesus, the one that was crucified on the Roman cross, the one who rose from the dead. He is the one in which all of God's promises to us are fulfilled. And from here, Matthew will trace not only the genealogy of Jesus, but also the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus in three movements. Three movements this morning as we look at this genealogy. Three movements that could be summed up in three words. Abraham, David, exile. Abraham, David, exile. Let's look first at movement number one. The movement of God's promise fulfilled in Jesus. Look at verses two through five. The promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, 
and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab. Here we go, they're starting to get hard. And Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. What's he talking about? He's talking about the promise. And he's tracing God's promise fulfilled in Jesus. And he starts with Abraham. Let's establish why Abraham is so important. In order to do that, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bible, flip back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 contains for us a huge promise. That promise that was whispered in the garden that God was going to do something about the sin and death and Satan and evil that's wrecked his creation and marred humanity. That promise gets amplified in a covenant that's made with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, look at what God says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country to your kindred and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, or that could word there be through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see it? We start to get this promise, uh, we see this promise start to get amplified. God makes a special arrangement with Abraham that he says will benefit him. God will bless him. God will make him into a great nation. God has chosen Abraham because he says Abraham was a man of faith, but it's God's unmerited favor. He chooses Abraham and he says, I'm going I'm to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation, but this will actually go beyond you. This blessing and this promise isn't to stay contained with you and with your family and your offspring and your nation. It's actually going to go beyond you. Verse 3 gives us a hint that Abraham would have a descendant that would bless all the families of the earth. In other words, someone would come from Abraham's offspring in the lineage of Abraham that would impact people all over the world. It's a twofold promise here. It's a promise that all places, all of the earth would be blessed. We're not sure exactly what that means yet at this point in the Bible, but the rest of the narrative Uh, The biblical story fills it in for us, but that all of the world will experience a blessing through this offspring and that all peoples, all ethnos, every ethnos will experience a blessing through the lineage of Abraham. And this genealogy goes on in verses uh, one through five, and there are names in this first movement that that he gives us. And it really, in a way, he's walking us through Israel's story at a really quick pace. He's, he's giving us kind of the, the, the peaks and the high points through different names and descendants. The story that we read about in the pages of the Old Testament. As human history moves forward, as represented, represented in these different parts of the lineage, so does God's promise move forward. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. We know that Israel is enslaved in Egypt. That promise during the Exodus story seems like it might be at risk. Is God really going to bless Israel and make them into a great nation? Is God going to really bless the whole world through Abraham? This promise seems to be at risk. But in uh, slavery in, in Egypt, they become a very sizable nation there. Remember that whole top line, bottom line thing that we've been talking about throughout our Jeremiah series 
Human history is moving forward and things are happening, yet God is working under the surface, fulfilling his promise and willing redemption in the earth. Eventually, through Moses, they're led out of slavery and they settle into the land of God's promise, the land that goes, that promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. They settle into the promised land and there they are ready for a king, which brings us to movement number two in the genealogy from Abraham to David. Look at verse six, six through 11. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Reboam. And Reboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeram. And Jeram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Do you see how through this genealogy, he's moving Israel's history forward all the way to the point of where we left off in our Jeremiah series with exile in Babylon. Now we need to establish why David is so important. Listen to this. Don't miss this. This is why David is so important all throughout the Bible. And you're going to, as we move forward in Advent, we're going to look at different prophecies and we're going to hear different verses that talk about the throne of David, the king to the throne of David. Here's why David was so important. God not only intended a people for himself, that was the, the covenant with Abraham. He was going to make a people for himself, a people through whom he, he which would reveal his glory and his grace to so that his glory and his grace might be revealed through to all the world, to all the nations. God not only wanted a people for himself, but he also desired a kingdom. God desired a kingdom that would reflect his justice and his righteousness to the world. So a people that would display his glory and his grace to all the nations, and a kingdom that would administer his justice and his righteousness and his good rule and reign to the ends of the earth. And in 2 Samuel, verse, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises that he will make all of this happen, that he will fill the earth not only with his glory through his people, but his righteousness and his justice through a ruling king. And God promises to make this king come from the line of David and says that he will rule over Israel forever. David, like Abraham, found unmerited favor in God's eyes. He was a man of faith. But we also know that he was an imperfect man. He was an adulterer. He was a sinner. And this promise, the genealogy tells us, passes from David, the king, to his son Solomon, who Solomon does some really great things. He builds God's kingdom. He establishes God's presence and his law in the temple, in the land, where there his kingdom will go forth. His glory and his grace should shine forth. But we also know that Solomon failed as well. In fact, Solomon... Solomon's sins is kind of what gets us into the mess that we looked at in Jeremiah. Because of Solomon's sin, uh, Israel divides into two kingdoms. The kingdom is, uh, is divided, it splits. There's kind of this civil war that happens, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Um, and the verses 7 through 11 in the genealogy, what it does for us is it traces some of Israel's kings in the Davidic line, from Solomon all the way to their exile in Babylon. Now, here's just an interesting tidbit for those of you who are Bible nerds. This is where um, Matthew's genealogy is a little bit different than Luke's genealogy. They actually give us different people and different names, and here's why. In Luke's genealogy, he's tracing Jesus' bloodline 
all the way back, but it leads to the same place. In Matthew's genealogy, he's tracing Jesus's connections to the Davidic kings all the way back, but they're leading us to the same place, different angles in which we're kind of looking at Jesus to see him as the fulfillment of God's promises. So we end up here traced all the way to the kings and the lineage of David to the point of exile in Babylon. I want you to flip over with me to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. This ought to be a familiar passage to you if you've been with us over the last few months of our study in Jeremiah. Just to remind you of what we saw in Jeremiah, the first 28 chapters of Jeremiah are full of really bad news for Israel. So God wanted a king and a kingdom that would establish his justice and his righteousness in the world. He wanted his, his people who were full of his glory and his grace to live in this kingdom. But we know that all of a sudden God's kings get turned wicked. Most of them, even most of the ones that are named here, almost all of them, with an exclusion of one, maybe two, it's kind of a toss-up on him, were super wicked kings. And they fill God's land with idols and idolatry. They start to uh, do really horrible, wicked things in God's kingdom. And we know that what happens, as we saw in Jeremiah, in the first 28 chapters of Jeremiah, that God says if they don't repent and return, he's going to send them into judgment. He's going to send them into exile. And God certainly does that. But in Jeremiah's chapter 31 and 33, we find this surprising good news, this word of surprising grace for sinners. In other words, despite Israel's sin and rebellion and the mess that they've made of God's kingship and God's kingdom in the world, he promises, he doubles down on his promise that he would indeed send a king who would establish his kingdom forever in the line of David. Look at Jeremiah 33 verses 14 through 16. God promises this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What is that promise? A great nation, a great people through whom his glory and his grace would go to the ends of the earth, that that promise passed to a great king who would rule and who would reign and who would establish God's kingdom. Look at what else he says, verse 15. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. Not like these wicked kings. A new king, a righteous king will come. And he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. What does God want in the world? His kingdom of justice and righteousness. Verse 16. In, the, in those days, Judah will be saved, so this king will offer salvation, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. He will gather up his people in a new place, in a new dwelling place. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. What a promise God makes in the darkest of days in Israel's history. From David's family, one would come who would be a righteous king. He would actually be a righteous king. Number two, he would rule rightly. He would rule with righteousness. That's a really big deal. That's a massive promise that seemed like it would, would never be fulfilled for Israel. But there's more. The promise in Jeremiah 33 also says that the king would be called our righteousness. In other words, he would give us his righteousness. He would give righteousness to those who are under his rule and under his reign. That is massive. Do you see it? Do you see this promise that he's tracing for us in this genealogy of who Jesus is? How he came in the fulfillment of this promise, this king of David, this righteous branch, this righteous one who would remove sin, who would bring salvation, and who would impart 
righteousness to those who find themselves under his rule and under his reign. Matthew is showing us how God's promise has moved forward throughout time and throughout history from the garden to Abraham, from Abraham to David, from David to exile. Let's see where it lands. Look at verse 12. Final movement of the promise. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of... This is is where they get really tough. Uh, Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of... Uh, Ebuid, and let's just skip down to verse 15 because there's about seven more names. Verse 15, and Eluid, the father of Elazar, and Elazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, in this final movement, if there's a person other than Jesus, obviously, that is important for us, it's Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the the person of importance in this movement. Zerubbabel, so we talked about how uh, they were they returned out of Babylonian exile. Do you remember that? We talked about that. uh, King Cyrus makes a decree as Persia overtakes the Babylonians, and he lets God's people go back into their land. And after seventy years of captivity, just like God said would happen, and they rebuild the temple and establish reestablish God's law. You remember all that? We talked about that. Zerubbabel was the one who kind of led the first wave of exiles back into the land, and in a way, he kind of functioned like a mini king of Israel, although he wasn't really a a king uh, fully in in that the scope of things. But in all reality, all that Zerubbabel's leadership really did was that it left Israel hungry for a time when God would truly fully restore Israel and he would establish this messianic king, this righteous branch. In fact, from returning uh, from their return to Babylon through all of these names, all of these generations, Israel is still awaiting this promise to be fulfilled. The promise that God would do something great through them that would bless the whole world. This promise that a king would rule and an everlasting kingdom would be established. This thing seems so far off. This thing seems so impossible, this promise. In fact, if you fast forward in human history to the year 4 BC, the people of God now, are be, the Israelites are now being ruled by the, by the Romans. They're under Roman authority. This promise seems so far off. There's been 400 years of silence since God has last spoken through the prophets Malachi and Zechariah. This promise seems so far off. That is, Matthew says, until Jesus was born, Jesus, who is the, the, the king in the line of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus, he says, who is the Christ. You see, this is the point of Matthew's genealogy. Baby Jesus didn't just show up on the scene out of nowhere. Jesus had been there. Jesus had been God's plan. Jesus is the promise. And the point that he's making in this flyover genealogy is to legitimize Jesus as the true Messiah. He's saying he is the one that every story of the Old Testament is pointing to. Every event, every king, every feast, every ceremony, every law, every promise, every covenant, all of it is pointing us to Jesus. All human history is willing itself forward to the fulfillment of this promise in Jesus. This is what Matthew is telling us. And there are two simple truths Simple but profound truths that I want us to take away from Matthew's genealogy as we start this Advent season. And the first is this. Only Jesus can make us right with God. Seems simple, right? 
but it's profound. Only Jesus can make us right with God. In other words, there is a claim here in this genealogy to the exclusivity of Christ. Christ alone is the only name by which we can be made right, which we can be made right with God, which we can be made right with self, that we can be made right with one another, that we can be saved from the holistic effects of sin uh, that separate us from God, from others, and that cause our world to rage and dysfunction. Only Jesus. It's an exclusive claim. What Matthew is showing us is that if he, Jesus, had been God's plan all along to deal with sin and evil, then we must go all in on Jesus if we want to be made right. We must cling to what Jesus has done. We must depend on all that Jesus has promised. Nothing else, no one else. This is why Jesus so clearly says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why? Because he and he alone had been God's promise from the beginning. This is what Matthew is showing us. This is why the apostles proclaim so boldly in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, they say. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Only Jesus. Why? Because he has been God's sole promise all along. He is the one in which all of human history has been working toward, and he is the one in which all of human history will be fulfilled in. And this is good news for us. Because you and I live in a world, in a time, in a place, in a culture, especially around Christmas time, where the narrative is that we can fix ourselves, we can heal ourselves, we can redeem ourselves, we can set ourselves right. We just need kind of the newest gadget, the newest phone. I remember several years ago seeing a, a TV commercial for a, I remember plasma screen TVs? Remember when, remember when those first came out? And the commercial was something along the lines of like, you, you know, if you buy this plasma TV, then like everything in your life is going gonna, is gonna to be great, right? Every, if the, everything in your life is going to be fixed if you buy this plasma screen TV. And I remember watching that commercial and just thinking like, I've never heard that testimony in my life. Like I've never heard that testimony of like, my marriage was a wreck, you know? I was, um, you know, I was just struggling with some deep hidden sin. Um, I was really depressed. I was in debt, but I bought that plasma screen TV, you know? It changed my life, set me free. Never heard that testimony, but we're bombarded with those kind of messages right now, this time of year. The point of Advent is to remind us that only Jesus can make us right. And this is good news for us. We can't fix ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't do enough good to atone for the wickedness in our hearts, the idolatry in our lives. Jeremiah kind of woke us up to that, didn't it? If you dug in and engaged, we were reminded of how sinful we are, how deceitful our hearts really are, how quick we are to turn to idols and other lovers. We can't do enough good to atone for all of it. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gift of Jesus. God doesn't want your performance. God doesn't want your performance. God wants your faith. In fact, he demands your faith and your repentance. Only through faith and repentance in God's sent Messiah, the son of David and Abraham, the one born of Mary, Jesus who came to earth living the life that you and I couldn't live, giving us his righteousness, the righteous one. Jesus who died the death that you and I deserve, taking upon himself our unrighteousness, our failures, our faithlessness. Jesus, the one who raised from the dead, offering us 
new life through resurrection. All of it is a gift of grace. It's all undeserved. It's all given freely. None of it is earned or accrued. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about, and it's what makes it unlike any other religious system on this planet. Only Jesus can make us right. That's our first takeaway from Matthew's genealogy. Matthew wants us to see Jesus for who he is. He wants to legitimize the claim of Christ and the claim of the gospel. Only Jesus can make you right. Only Jesus can redeem your life. Only Jesus can heal our world. And then there's a, there's a second claim. There's a second truth that's kind of buried a little bit deeper in this genealogy, but it's there if you dig, and it's this. Anyone can be saved by Jesus. In other words, there's an exclusivity to Christ. It's only Jesus by which we can be saved, which we can be made right. But anyone, there's an inclusivity to Jesus. Anyone can be saved. Anyone can be made right. Anyone can be forgiven. Anyone can experience grace. Anyone can be redeemed. It's a beautiful promise. There's an exclusivity to Christ, but in that there's an inclusivity to Christ. Matthew is very intentionally in this genealogy highlighting for us who Jesus came for. You see, a typical Jewish genealogy would only include uh, key male figures, heads of households, right? And also it would generally only include kind of the impressive or the superior in the lineage. So most all genealogies are going to be a flyover uh, Jewish, ancient Jewish genealogies are going to be a flyover and it's going to be heads of households and kind of the superior or the impressive. And you're basically trying to say like, yeah, yeah, I'm part of that lineage. I'm with those people, the winners. And you leave out everybody else. You know, you leave out the crazy drunk uncle or whoever. You know, you're not putting that guy in there. Not this genealogy. I told you it's a little bit hidden, but it's beautiful. In this genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, it intentionally, Matthew does, includes both men and women. That would have been shocking. It includes men and women, mentions women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. It includes both Jews and Gentiles. Remember, he's telling us who Jesus came for. Jesus came for anyone and everyone who would turn to him in repentance and faith. It includes Gentiles like Rahab and Ruth. It includes people of questionable character. It includes adulterers and prostitutes alongside of heroes in the faith and great kings of Israel. What's the point? The point is simple. God can save, God can redeem anyone through Jesus. Amen? Yeah, we're in this room, aren't we? Hear me. There is no one that is too messy for God. This genealogy will not let you believe that you are too messy for God. If you're here today and you've made mistakes, if you are here today and you have serious dark, deep, hidden struggles with sin, if you are here today and you've been hurt and wounded, if you are here today and you are suffering, you are lonely, you are lost, this genealogy is reminding you this morning, you and me, that we are in good company, that Jesus has come to forgive and redeem all kinds of sinners, religious sinners and irreligious sinners. Jesus has come to save all kinds of sufferers. See, Jesus' lineage reminds us that each one of us have been saved from the grips of sin in unique and personal ways. And it also reminds us that God is forming in Jesus, in this Messiah, a new people for himself who will dwell in his new kingdom. He's calling together a diverse people, a people from every tribe and tongue, 
In Jesus Christ, God is tearing down dividing walls of hostility that exist among us in every generation, whether it be Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, black, white, whatever it is. God has come in Jesus Christ to reconcile us not only to himself, but to one another. He is making a new family. And as we receive his grace and submit our lives to his rule and reign over us, we experience life in his promised kingdom. He's gathering a people for himself. He's establishing a kingdom that will never fail, that will last forever, in which his justice and his righteousness will go forth in all creation. A kingdom, Jesus himself tells us, where the first shall be last, the last shall be first. A kingdom that welcomes the weak and blesses the poor. A kingdom that is here and now as the resurrected Jesus rules and reigns. And a kingdom that will come again in full upon the return of Christ. There's a lot in the genealogy, isn't there? You see, this is what Advent is all about. As we enter into this season, it's what it's all about. It's about remembering the promise of God. It's about locating ourselves in a hectic and frenzy time of life in reality, in the biblical story. Grabbing hold of the promise of God, the promise that he made that he would indeed defeat sin and death and evil, the stuff that so plagues our lives and our world. It's about seeing that promise fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. And it's also about trusting that promise afresh in our lives. It's about remembering the promise-keeping nature of God and growing our hope and our anticipation for his return. Church family, I want to invite us this Advent season, as hard as it might be, to slow down our lives, to stir up our hearts, and to ready ourselves for the return of our King Jesus. Let's pray.